you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. Studios. Hi, besties. It's me, your host, Brian De Los Santos, and we're back with another episode from Ellie Made the Barbie Tapes. Stay tuned to hear about Ken's origin story and how he became just Ken. How many Kens do you have? Oh, I liked Ken a lot more than Barbie, so I have a whole bunch. And this is baseball Ken? This is, yeah, this one's slightly later. That was the original Ken from 1961. But this one is Ken in the baseball outfit with the enormous bat, one of his phallic props, (laughs) and the chipped hair. He's not wearing, I think, what he came with in the box. I don't think they came quite that Baroquely cross-dressed. No, I, I got these out of storage. Ken is wearing Solo in the Spotlight. Oh, Charlotte's, one of Charlotte's favorite designs. Barbie's slinky black chanteuse outfit (laughs) with a tutu that was originally, and on Barbie, a tutu at the ankles. But here it sort of falls more mid-calf on Ken. Most of us never knew of a time when there was just Barbie. No Ken, no Midge, no Skipper, just a gal on her own. And Ruth Handler, her inventor and co-founder of Mattel, really didn't want a boyfriend for Barbie. Barbie was intended to be about that period, you know, in a girl's life or a young woman's life uh, with no relationships of responsibility, no parents, no kids. And a boyfriend kind of interfered with that vision, except, of course, that to all the mothers and little girls, you know, who had the doll, well, they all had this notion that a woman without a man, (laughs) an escort, an accessory, a thing, was a failure. And Mattel had to cave to that, and Ruth had to realize that, you know, you couldn't push back against that tidal wave of opinion. And so, by popular demand, Ken was introduced in 1961. So now Mattel brings you Ken, Barbie's boyfriend. Get both Barbie and Ken and see where the romance will lead. Do you ever think there's been a kid who didn't immediately depants Ken as soon as they got him out of the box? Even Barbie's creators knew that was going to happen. But Ruth Handler wasn't as concerned as the men on her team. None of us wanted a doll with a penis showing. Uh, In the case, if the child took off with a swimsuit, we felt it would be inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, The question was whether to have a bulge there. I wanted breasts, and nobody else wanted breasts, uh, women's breasts. Yeah. And uh, they were wrong. And I wanted a bulge, and... uh, they didn't want bulges. I think that uh, the men uh, were less daring than I was. And certainly, I don't know if the Ken doll's got a bulge now. Yeah, he? no, he does, definitely. He should. I love that you had to confirm that for her. As you can tell, Ruth had very strong opinions about what Barbie and Ken should be and 
She stuck to her guns. She was a tough and gutsy businesswoman, but she was also an excellent marketer, and the market, the kids and their mothers, demanded a boyfriend. With a complete wardrobe of perfectly tailored clothes of unmatched quality. Now Ken and Barbie meet for lunch at school, go to fraternity parties, and just relax together. He has such great clothes. He looks so good in those days. Well, in any case, Ken was simply the first addition to the growing Barbie universe. Because as Barbie became a household name, the company had to keep making new toys and items for children to fall in love with. And that's what this episode is all about. It's about Mattel's efforts to keep Barbie, who started out ahead of her time, from falling behind the times. How could they prevent this wildly popular fashion doll created in the 1950s from seeming totally clueless during the social upheaval of the 60s? Well, they had mixed results. And to complicate things even more, it wasn't too long before Mattel faced an upheaval in its boardroom, a story that didn't end well for company founders Ruth and Elliot Handler. I'm Antonia Cerejido. And I'm M.G. Lord, author of Forever Barbie, the unauthorized biography of a real doll. And this is L.A. Made, The Barbie Tapes. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theatre Company at the Los Angeles Theatre Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Pindarvis Harshaw, host of the Right Nowish podcast. Every week, I talk to the people who are creating art and culture and spreading it to the universe. As an artist, you always meet yourself. Every year, you're a different person. Essentially, we normalize a space where you can show up as your authentic self. Check out Right Nowish. Rooted in California's Bay Area, speaking to you. It's so many people of color, so many queer people. It's like I'm being celebrated in my fullness. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. So, MG, the story of Barbie and how she's achieved iconic status and stayed at the top of the toy world for six decades is complicated and just so interesting, especially since we are hearing it in the words of her creators themselves. Well, in the course of writing my book back in the early 90s, I conducted hours and hours of interviews with the people who dreamed up and designed and dressed the doll. And nobody has ever heard these interviews until now on this podcast. I just thought, given the excitement over the new Greta Gerwig Barbie movie, it was time to go into the vaults and see exactly what I had. There are gems in these tapes. Like, I love listening to Charlotte Johnson, who designed Barbie's first wardrobes and accessories. Charlotte used to read the letters that the kids wrote to Barbie. And there were a lot of them asking for a boyfriend she talked about it with my colleague and Forever Barbie consultant, Ella King Tory, who began researching for a Barbie project in the 70s. So I put a note through the company that Barbie should have a boyfriend, that the children were asking for it. You know? uh-huh. So they did. They had uh, a sculptor here build a pen. Yeah, they created a boyfriend, but one with essentially zero personality. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not just the personality that he lacked. <laughs> 
Yeah, so this is a clip of Charlotte Johnson talking about how they created um, Ken's something or lack of something. And uh, there was a big meeting called, and I was a member of the meeting with Mr. Ms. Handler, number of the vice presidents, uh, yeah, uh, and here stood this doll that looked exactly like Barbie in the crack. <laughs> and I was shocked. And I said, well, look at the way you built Barbie with those bosoms. At least he ought to look male. Uh-huh. You know, and Mrs. Handler said, sure, was absolutely right. And the men just flushed and got so <laughs> And they said something about, well, what do you want? And I said, well, at least he should have a, a bump Suggestion. in the front. A yeah. in the front, you know. He's different. He, he shouldn't look like Barbie. And so uh, they made a date for another meeting. And so the sculptor brought in three more clays. Kids. <laughs> and degrees of bump. <laughs> one where well, you couldn't even see it, you know. The uh-huh. next one was sort of a little bit rounded, and the next one really was. The men, especially one of the vice presidents, terribly embarrassed. And he was a middle-aged man, you know, and then he gets on birth. And Mrs. Handler and I picked the middle version as, yeah. as being the one that uh, was nice looking. And uh, he said he would never have it in the toy line unless we paint uh, jockey shorts over it. And I said, well, do you know what every little girl in this country is going to do? They're going to sit there and scratch that, <laughs> scratch that paint off to see what's under What else would they do? It's so delightful to hear her talk about the men blushing in the room over the bump. So once the correct bump was selected, apparently using the Goldilocks just right system of decision-making, Ken hit the stores in March of 1961. His first outfit included red swimming trunks, a red striped button-up, and a fluffy yellow beach towel. But after that first very traditional beachwear outfit, Ken's wardrobe became more notable. Many of them included outrageous phallic props. I hold up here oh in gosh. the studio the Ken baseball outfit. Which I think we should the, add that the, the bat is like much longer than what like the a normal no, bat. No, it is not a it is not a normal bat. It's, it's like it's it's this It's like hilariously long. It's this it's this outrageously long phallic prop. He had a hunting outfit with a giant gun. He was a doctor. Barbie was a nurse. But Ken, Ken had this pendulous stethoscope. I mean, just over and over again, he was accessorized with phallic props. And I think the the cruelest one, it came, I believe, in 1964 with cheerful chef that unlike Barbie's barbecue outfit, was accessorized with this long fork skewering a pink plastic weenie. Barbie never had this fork or this weenie thing. You look at the message on Ken's apron, and he's holding this this weenie, and the apron is captioned, come and get it. Uh, you know, this brutal taunt about the genital that doll will never possess. So ultimately, the ladies won out, and Ken did have and continues to have a slight bump of genitalia. So that was 1961. But a boyfriend wasn't enough to satisfy clamoring Barbie fans. Here again is Charlotte Johnson, Barbie's wardrobe designer. Well, we no sooner got the Ken doll on the market... So we got letters from children saying, what do you have, baby? You know, 
I have a little crib. My father says he'll make a little crib and all of this stuff. And so again, I went to Mrs. Handler and I said, it looks like Barbie and Ken are going to have to have a baby pretty soon. She said, never, go think of something. And she called me up one day. She says, I've got it. If the kids want a baby, we'll make a baby for them. But it's going to be Barbie babysitter. And so we did a pass. Right. And Mrs. Handler wouldn't rest until we actually wrote it on the apron, Barbie babysitter. Because she didn't want anybody to think, think that Barbie that had baby. Barbie had a baby, yeah. yeah. And so Mattel created Barbie's little sister, Skipper, who was smaller in size. Not a baby, but, you know, a little girl. Skipper, she's Barbie's little sister, and she has beautiful long hair you can really brush. And because so, for little girls craving a baby for Barbie and a mother, Skipper would have to do. As you can tell, Ruth had very strong opinions about what Barbie could and could not do. And one of the things that Barbie absolutely could not do was dirty work. Right. Rough housework. No rough housework. That's not a bad life. I mean, <laughs> no, it sounds pretty nice. Ruth's concept of prosperous, glamorous, and like drudgery-free womanhood was not what she herself knew growing up. She was the 10th and youngest child in her family. Ruth was sent off when she was only six months old to live with her married sister, and she grew up in that home, and there just wasn't a lot of money. Ruth went to California and got herself a job at Paramount Pictures at the age of 19, Charlotte Johnson remembers how particular Ruth was about Barbie's identity and activities. You know, one time, uh, one of the <clears throat> eminent vacuum companies, a salesman came in, and they had built a, a vacuum cleaner, just Barbie scale. Uh-huh. And they offered to give it to us if we would put it in a pack. And it was just scale. It was beautifully done. I was, I just loved it. And uh, I took it into Mrs. Handler, and she said, Barbie doesn't do housework. (laughs) I was in the vacuum cleaner. While Ruth was challenging popular ideas of a woman's place in society in her own way, nearly every facet of society was being challenged by growing social movements. Remember, the year is 1967. Here's a sample of what was going on outside Barbie's dream house. Anti-war demonstrators protest U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. On their way to the Pentagon, civil rights leader Martin Luther King leads the procession to the United Nations. Mass draft card burning was urged. Anti-miscegenation laws have been declared illegal in all 16 states that have held such statutes. And we would reflect the changing society around us in the clothing uh, Mm. changes and in the appearance we kept gradually making her a little prettier. We kept trying to make her better and better through the years. As Ruth said, when it came to acknowledging social change in the 60s, it was mostly through Barbie's wardrobe. They weren't willing at that point to change Barbie in a deeper or more meaningful way. Here's Charlotte Johnson. The 60s and the uh, hippie kids of Barbie were really all going around on flat feet, you know? <laughs> So we had to make a Barbie with a flat foot. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. So we made her with a joint ankle Uh so she could wear either heels because we always have to look back as well as forward so it could either wear the high heels or be a flat foot. Uh It was a huge failure, that, that Barbie. The universe was not ready for the change in Barbie's feet. And they wouldn't be ready for that change, really, until the 21st century. So... 
While Barbie had to climb back into those stilettos, Mattel came up, nevertheless, with some new friends for her, Francie and Casey. Francie was introduced as Barbie's modern cousin, mod being a groovy British slang term in the 1960s, uh, long before you were born, Antonia. <laughs> This is the swinging world of the swingingest teenager around. It's Francie with long, slippy hair and real eyelashes. And here's Francie's swinging friend, Casey. Oh my God, Casey had a great haircut. <laughs> I love it. What's interesting about Francie and Casey to me is that they're showing a slightly different body type. Like you see how they're expanding and sort of how they're showing women. So these dolls have smaller boobs, they're more flat chested. But more was going on, too, because, you know, in the late 1960s, which actually was a big deal at the time, Barbie had her first friends of color. Not to be confused with Barbies of color, who we wouldn't see for quite a while, but Francie, whom we saw in that commercial, reappeared as Black Francie, who in 1967, who actually had the misfortune in her labeling to be colored Francie. That's insane. And her head was made from a white Barbie mold. But nevertheless, friends of color. There was the Christie doll also in 1968, and a year later, the Julia doll, based on a character that Diane Carroll played on television. In another nod to the moment, Barbie would also get additional careers. You know, she wasn't just a fashion doll anymore. Right, she was a model. Yeah, but Charlotte also gave her a, a portfolio of fashion sketches. She was a working woman and not working at the same job that Lily worked at. Right. And there were even more, but, you know, she was a flight attendant in the 60s, a nurse, a ballerina. Later, even, you know, she was even an astronaut in 1965. Wow, that's, yeah, yeah, well, that's pretty. In the 80s, though, the astronaut costume was all fantasy. You know, it was all pink and had this, like, bubble thing on the top. The, the 1965 astronaut, she had this gray schmada of a spacesuit. I mean, she was a working astronaut. It wasn't all glamour back in the 1960s. She was like Jerry Cobb, the female aviator in the Mercury 13. But with like very intense eyeshadow and like a ponytail under right. the helmet. From my 10 days doing physiological flight training at the Johnson Space Center when I myself took a zero gravity flight, one thing we learned is you can't wear all that makeup and you absolutely can't wear all that makeup because you're in an oxygen-rich environment. And what happens if there's to the makeup? a fire, it'll burn your face oh off. Oh my God. You can't wear petroleum-based products on your face. Okay, I did not know that. Barbie would have lost her face. It's a little digression, but it is of concern. But it's so it's interesting. So at this point, like Barbie, she's allowed to do more things. She's expanding in her career. So Mattel is trying to address these different things, mostly by adding new figures to the doll universe. But many of the dolls were hardly what you would call progressive. It should be said that Barbie's black friends were not career women. They were just shopping sidekicks. And when Talking Christie came out, she said things like, I'd like to be a fashion model. In 1967, there was this big redesign of Barbie herself. Here's Ruth again. We gave her the twist and turn body and the bending arms. But you have to hear the commercial. 
Because if there was ever an ad that showed how tone-deaf a company could be, this one is it. The new Barbie twists. The new Barbie turns. Wouldn't you like the new Barbie? But what do I do with my old Barbie? What do you do? Here's what you do. Just take your old Barbie before it's too late and run, run, run to the toy store. Then trade it to the man with $1.50 less than half what you normally pay. And look what you get. New Barbie for less than half price. Oh, it's horrible. It's just, it's like, it's like Ivana Trump getting traded in for Melania or whatever the one that came before Melania. You know, you chuck your longtime wife for your second family. Maybe Barbie had to twist and turn to duck from feminist attacks on her. Well, women who objected to the unattainable so-called Barbie body were out of luck. Barbie and her teenage doll friends continued to be thin and pretty, and that wasn't going to change. Jack Ryan, the Barbie designer, acknowledged that it came down to the bottom line. The format that Barbie has now seems to have won enormous appeal over the years, and it goes on and on. And therefore, you try to feed it rather than modify it. Severely. And with that in mind, I bring yet another example of the war on baby fat, the 1965 Barbie Slumber Party Pack. That's Ken's. The Ken's, no, the Ken Sleep Outfit came with a sweet roll. The Barbie Sleep Outfit came with the scale permanently set at 110. This is real? It's crazy. This pack includes a tiny book that on the front says how to lose weight and the back says don't eat in all caps. And they gave this to children in the 60s? I think it was perceived as a joke, but, you know, obviously not. It's so wild. And even with all of that, the dolls were still selling as well as ever. Until they weren't. And when Barbie's sales plummeted, Ruth Handler found herself in big trouble. That's coming up next. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. It's 1971, and here's another major Barbie hit, Malibu Barbie. Malibu Barbie! She's Mattel's super new suntan Barbie. Hey, Barbie's got a golden tan now, with sunny super gold hair. Malibu Barbie has her own beach towel and sunglasses and Malibu friends, all with that suntan skin that makes them look great wherever they go in any of their groovy new fashions. Oh, come on, skin cancer Barbie. (laughs) She's extremely tan. Full California vibe, scary deep tan, straight blonde hair. First time she looked straight ahead. Smile was a little wider. Instant hit, and she sold well throughout the 70s. 
So as usual, Mattel was riding high on the shoulders of Barbie. But suddenly, about a year later, things went very wrong. Ruth said, Tom, there's a group of people in this company that say Barbie is dead. I said, what do you mean, Ruth? She said, well, you know, last year we had our first decline ever since the introduction of Barbie. In but it was right around yeah. that time period. And uh, she said, people are saying because we had this first decrease in sales that Barbie's over. It's finished. And that we ought to get on to other categories of toys and be spending more R&D dollars in, in other ways. That's the voice of Tom Kalinske, whom Ruth made head of Barbie marketing in the early 70s. I said, Ruth, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Barbie is going to be here long after you and I are gone. Clearly, he had that one right. But not without some ups and downs. Okay, let's set the scene a little bit in terms of the outside pressures on Barbie. As the women's movement grew bigger and more influential in the 70s, feminists launched plenty of complaints against Barbie. To name just a few, in 1971, the National Organization for Women attacked Mattel for gender stereotypes in ads, boys playing with educational toys and girls playing with dolls. In 1972, feminists demonstrated at the toy fair and accused Barbie of encouraging little girls to see themselves as, quote, mannequins, sex objects, or housekeepers. I'm sure that last one hurt well, Ruth's feelings. Yeah. But Mattel must have believed that the feminist complaints weren't hurting their sales, or they would have reacted, right? You know, I got some really valuable insight into why Mattel pretty much ignored the feminist criticism. When I spoke with Derek Gable, he was a product designer on the Barbie team. You know, people criticize Barbie and say, well, Barbie is really just the airhead and fashion and do, 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 all this stuff. But over and over, over the periods of time that we're there, there was a thrust to try to make Barbie be a good role model and get girls interested in certain things. And so there was a tremendous amount of market testing done with Barbie way back, you know, in the early 70s, of Barbie's careers and you name it. I mean, everything. Doctors, any kind of career, anything outside of fashion. Whenever you did a test, 100% of the time, the ones that, the things that won the test were fashion, hair play, makeup. And so it really wasn't that Barbie was forcing that on the public. It was basically that that's what little girls wanted to play with. And you can, you know, you're in this business to make money. And there's no point right. in having an office girl there or a doctor if the girl, the kids want to play with boutique. Mattel was a leader in market research. They really took the temperature of their consumers in terms of their attitudes. And clearly, Mattel wasn't responding to the feminists because the kids and mothers in their focus group were not in harmony with the feminists. So the research showed that little girls wanted to play with a doll like Malibu Barbie. And even though Malibu Barbie was still very popular, somehow Mattel found itself dealing with their first loss in sales in 1972. MG, what what happened? Well, Mattel went on a spending spree since 1969. The company diversified. It bought a pet supplies company, a circus, Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey, an audio tape company. They even got into the movie business. But they overextended themselves and their luck changed. One of the toy divisions missed their revenue target. And according to Tom Kalinske, that led Ruth to make a big mistake. Ruth was uh, an incredible woman. Very, very smart, great uh, marketing person, great finance person. She really uh, knew business. She had years of success where everything always went correctly for her. And every quarter, earnings would be up, uh, 
sales would be up, and it just kept going that way for years and years and years. Then they, she had a quarter where that didn't occur. She didn't know how to deal with it. And so she ended up uh, relying on some inside financial people and salespeople. They said to her, Ruth, don't worry about it because we just talked with the sales force. The sales force says they're going to get all these orders in next quarter. So what we'll do is we'll count a little bit of next quarter's business as this quarter's business. And don't worry about it. Business didn't get any better. Says, what shall we do? She gets basically the same answer. This is a momentary problem. It's a calendarization problem. It's all going to be straight now. She goes along with these guys. Well, needless to say, after three quarters of it not getting any better, she had committed fraud for the company. So, uh, as head of the company, she was responsible for having reported sales and earnings that didn't exist. But she was guilty. But I think there were some extenuating circumstances. And when you think about it, as the largest shareholder in the company, it hurt her more than it did any of the other shareholders. Yeah. You asked Ruth about this, right? What did she say? Yes, I did. A lot of people, you know, feel that you got a very raw deal. We did. I, I mean, just, just I a really, a really... I got shut up. I, I got shut up. We left with a lot of scandal hanging over her. Yeah, I mean... Uh, but that was, that was a bunch of baloney. According to a New York Times story, Ruth was indicted on 10 counts of conspiracy, mail fraud, and making false financial statements to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Elliot was not charged. Ruth ultimately pleaded no contest, but she told me emphatically that she was not guilty. It's so amazing to me that Barbie has survived long past Ruth's departure, because up until this point, Barbie was really made in her vision. So now that Ruth was gone, who was responsible? Well, in terms of the financial status of the company, a Mattel executive named Arthur Spear was put in charge. And he brought the company back to financial profitability within a few years. In terms of design, however, the team, especially the Barbie team, seemed a little bit rudderless. And assumptions that male toy designers made about what worked for boys' toys were incorporated into the Barbie line, and they didn't always work. Meet new growing up Skipper. She's two dolls in one. Because when you turn her arm, you can make her change instantly from a little girl to a tall, slender teenage doll, which is something... She grows three-quarters of an inch taller, and she sprouts breasts. <laughs> I so mean, that is, such a, that is such a male thing, you know? The, I, there is a marker for the transition from girlhood to womanhood, and it's not the breasts. <laughs> and it's not something they wanted to think about. It's also bizarre because in real life, boobs grow gradually. They don't just, like, pop out, and they definitely don't pop back in. Boy, I mean, the feminists justifiably, you know, went off on this thing. There was also the growing up Skipper room where, uh, in childhood, young Skipper had a desk where she could do her homework. But growing up Skipper, <laughs> they take away the desk and they give her a vanity. Now, that one even got me infuriated. Anyway, let's uh, let's watch this thing creak and make a noise and terrify any girl on the cusp of puberty. Let's see. Are we That's getting... the sound of her of her arm winding up. She's gonna pop here. <laughs> That's it. Well, the really the even scarier one is when you throw her arm back. 
she pops back down again and the breasts go away. This was this was terrifying. I mean, you know. I no, was, it's, it's obviously, it makes a lot of sense why mothers hated it. Um, and you actually talked about that with designer Derek Gable. Did your group come up with this with growing up skipper, which has got to be the most amazing feat? Yeah, isn't that great? Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, yeah. it, it boggles the mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, it really grows on you, right? So to speak. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. We had a lot of con- that was quite controversial. I can imagine. The times began to change again. There was the rise in the late seventies of celebrity culture and disco culture. Mattel even made a disco Barbie cannon skipper dressed in gold lame outfits. So it makes sense that Mattel would capitalize on the moment by bringing us superstar Barbie. Well, let's hear let's hear Bernie Loomis, who was a marketing executive at Mattel at the time, explain the thinking behind superstar Barbie. We have the opportunity, obviously, to change Barbie's image. Um, we did so back in 1976, I guess, when we introduced Superstar. Superstar Barbie. That's right. And that really vaulted her into a new era, okay? And was very, very successful. And we've kept that particular face uh, since that time uh, and altered it slightly, depending upon whatever toy we were coming out with. But uh, she was positioned basically as a very glamorous, uh, sophisticated young lady. And we never really said that she was a, a celebrity. But she was a superstar. Yeah. Uh, She was a celebrity. I think the celebrity part is really important. Why do you think the late 70s into the 80s saw the rise of celebrity culture? It was a pivot kind of in popular culture. It was a transitional moment between the anti-materialism of the hippies in the late 1960s and early 70s and the 1980s and the ascendancy of the greed is good Wall Street culture. I love 80s Barbie. I think it's quintessential Barbie, so I'm really excited that we're going to get into that. Next time on LA Made, the Barbie tapes. In our final episode, we enter one of Barbie's most profitable decades, from the workforce to the workout. Barbie was a girl of her time. And a group of powerful executive women at Mattel fight to make the doll more reflective of real women. I'm Antonia Cerejido. And I'm M.G. Lord. See you next time. L.A. Made the Barbie Tapes is hosted by me, Antonia Cerejido. And me, M.G. Lord. The show is a production of L.A.'s Studios. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is our Vice President of Podcasts. Catherine Milhouse is the Director of Content Development. Our producer is Minju Park. Shelley Lewis is our writer and editor. Fact-checking on this episode by Ali Bianco. This episode was sound designed by Minju Park. E. Scott Kelly is our mix engineer. Jens Campbell is our production coordinator. Sarah Burnett and Ali Bianco are our interns. Our website, Elias.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team at Elias Studios created our branding. LA Made, The Barbie Tapes is a production of Elias Studios. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.